We're looking at questions, and um, we're not just looking at just any question. We're in a series looking at tough questions, uh, those kind of questions that uh, can be perplexing and, and, and even uh, jar us at times. Um, you know, sometimes we're asked to play roles in life, aren't we? And in those roles, questions are going to be very difficult. If you are a health advocate in a relationship with someone, uh, you might be asked a very difficult question at some point in time along that journey, like, are you willing and ready to remove life support from your loved one? That's a very tough question. Um, some of us might be uh, daily uh, kind of treading on that line of whether or not the kinds of decisions that we're making, are they the right decisions? They're questionable decisions. And, and a question might be, are we willing to risk our, our families and our vocations and our reputations and our livelihood just so that we can embark upon this one thrill that we think is just really exciting? These are tough questions. Some questions that we have in life aren't so tough at all. In fact, they're kind of humorous, like paper or plastic. Uh, other questions that come with that is uh, one lump or two, you know, sugar. Uh, the other question is, is will Pastor Bob let us out early today? It's Mother's Day. And the answer to that is no, but we'll try, we'll try very hard. But what happens when the questions aren't easy? What happens when the questions are, deal with our faith? What happens when, when we have questions about the faith that we confess? What happens when either we've been a believer for a long time or we are just scratching on the surface of the door of this thing called faith and questions arise? Last week, we started with a, with a huge question. Why would God allow bad to happen to me? And we, and we dealt with that. And, and today, we're gonna look at a, a tough question too. In fact, it's a question not only that we should be asking Asking ourselves, but it's a question that um, non-believers ask themselves when they come in contact with we who are the believers, and that is, why are Christians hypocrites? And we're going to look at that today and, and try to understand the importance of why that answer and being able to answer that and address that is so important. So why are Christians hypocrites? Um, why, why is it that the world who uh, doesn't know what a Christian is or thinks they know what a Christian is, why do they think we're hypocrites? It's, it's kind of like what made Mahatma Gandhi say those famous words. He said, I like your Christ, I just don't like your Christians. Uh, your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And I think if we were to think about that, we, we spend time scratching our heads and, and we wonder today, you know, why our churches and, and why our um, cathedrals and places of worship, why are they dwindling with people who are attending and why are churches that were once filled with masses of people on, on Sundays and, and holy days, why are they becoming like empty warehouses? And the question becomes, is the message we're proclaiming wrong? Or is it maybe the message we're proclaiming and, and how we live aren't jiving? And that's got people that are concerned. One atheist put it this way. He wrote, I do agree that Christians can be good people, but not good enough to defy their God by doing some community outreach for hell-bound people. I would never consider being a Christian, he writes, but I might consider not being so critical if more Christians were open and genuine and willing to actually talk about their beliefs, their arrogance, which he terms as we've got the truth and you don't. He says it belies the, the hypocrisy of whatever acceptance and love that they could ever muster. And I think it's kind of funny that they sign that anonymous. You know, I, I, well, I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but you know, when we have something profound to say, 
We should never hide behind a, an unsigned note or an unsigned letter or anonymous. We should be able to be able to speak our minds and put our names to it. Um, the reason I would love for this person to not have been anonymous was it would have allowed to engage a conversation uh, that Christian leaders and Christian believers could have. But maybe we'll have to wait another time to do that. Jesus said that the greatest danger uh, to the Christian faith was when believers pointed out life choices that were not right in the lives of others, but then they themselves in their own lives were doing the same thing. Jesus called that hypocrisy. Matthew 15 uh, goes back to a story where, where Jesus is dealing with a group of people that he dealt with an awful lot, the scriptures tell us. And they're called Pharisees. And Pharisees were, were ones who were like the ones that uh, obeyed the law, the ones who uh, uh, made sure everybody was law-abiding and, and those kinds of things. They were uh, religious people indebted to the religious nature of what they believed. They were seen as judgmental. They were seen as rigid. They seemed that they were uh, wanting to just follow the rules, so to speak, of what life is to be. And Jesus called them on that. Jesus says that that we need to be careful, especially when we are broadcasting to a world of non-believers what it is that we stand for. And to this group called the Pharisees, Jesus reminded them of the writings of the prophet Isaiah. And he said these words. He said, remember what Isaiah said. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules that were taught by men. So all of a sudden, we, we find out that, that this group that Jesus had trouble with, they were so staunch in trying to keep the rules of religion, like how much soap and water to use when you wash your hands before a meal, that they were so consumed by making sure everyone had the proper amounts for something like that, that they were ignoring the care of their own mother and father. And Jesus said that is hypocrisy in its greatest context. So to be fair... Uh, being a hypocrite's not exclusive a Christian condition. In fact, it's a human condition, isn't it? So whether you're a Christian or, or a non-Christian, whether you are a human being, then you have hypocrisy in your life. And, 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 and the challenge is when we say we're not hypocritical, that in itself, by default, is a statement of hypocrisy because all of us have that nature that's within us. However, the reason why hypocrisy is an issue in the Christian church is because we find ourselves as ones trying to lift up a different way of life, don't we? And we begin to try to share that when we come into the presence of God, that life should see some changes and some things with that. But we have to be careful because when we begin proclaiming those words, we begin to sound too preachy. And we can actually turn people away from a message of, of goodness, a message of life transformation, but more importantly, the outsiders look at Christians and say, but instead of telling me what to do, why don't you show me by your own life? Why don't you do rather than just say? So as Christians, one thing that we know is that we are all guilty of sin, don't we? We know that we are sinners, and we know that sin is something that's in our life. It's, a, it's impossible for anyone to escape from sin. And when we speak or live in a way that hides our sins, then we are living into a mass life where we are portraying our life to be something that it really isn't. And as we look at our lives and as we look at this question about our, why are Christians hypocrites and, and why the world of non-believers looks that harshly upon us, we have to examine ourselves. 
And we, begin, we need to begin starting to live our life in the way in which Christ taught us to live, not in what we have made it become. The Barna Research Group is a, is a great research group that, that helps Christian leaders look at data from around the world, but more importantly at trends and at, at statistics and, and interviews and those kinds of things to find out what exactly is happening with, with religion, what is happening in Christendom. And the Barna Study Group a couple years ago asked non-Christians, these are non-Christians, they asked them these questions, what are the reasons why you don't like Christians? That was the first question. And the second question is, why do you not want to become a Christian? So why, what are the reasons you don't like Christians, and why is it that you don't want to become a Christian? This is what was asked of non-believers, people who were not ascribed to the Christian faith. The interesting part is that the top two to three answers really have nothing to do with doctrine. They have nothing to do with the evidentiary reasons like scientific proof and non-proof and studies like that. But it all had to deal with the moralistic approach of what Christians said they stood for. The top answer said that, that they don't like the hypocrisies and the judgmental attitudes within the church. Non-believers said that the reason why they have difficulty connecting to be a Christian is that they see Christians as being judgmental. They see them as being homophobic. They see them as being uh, persons who are responsible for the Crusades and the, and the Great Inquisition that killed tens of thousands of people throughout history. They see the injustices. They see all those things, those bad things that they believe make Christians who they are. And they see that in us. And they wonder why they should ever choose to become one of us. It's been said that the number one argument against the existence of God is Christians themselves. And these are the kinds of things that we have to deal with. Now, I'm looking at faces and, and I'm seeing horror, like, oh my gosh, why is my pastor telling me all these things? Folks, we, we have to understand what the world sees in us. The only way that we're going to be able to make disciples, the only way we're going to be able to share the love of Jesus Christ is to understand how the outside world sees we who are the Christian people, how they see what we represent. And, it, and it's a gut check for us. It's a gut check for us to make sure that we're living truly in the life of what Jesus Christ has called us to live. Some who are outside of the church fear. If I become a Christian, then I'm going to have to take all that baggage, all that baggage that I read about, all that baggage that I see on the news, all that baggage that comes with that. And that's the reason why so many non-believers that's the reason why so many non-Christians don't like the message that we're giving. Steven Weinberg said this. He said, good people will do good things and bad people will do bad things. But for good people to do bad things, that takes religion. He says that if we theologize oppression, if we theologize violence, if we theologize all those things in our minds, his theory is if we can theologize it, if we can somehow say that that's part of what our faith represents, then we can justify anything that we absolutely want to do. And when we begin to theologize things, when we begin to make it all about what we believe in, in theology, so to speak, that's why we have abortion clinic bombings. That's why we have Palestinians and Israelis fighting. That's why we have events like 9-11. That's why we have terrorism in the world, because people are theologizing, groups are theologizing. If they can believe it, that that's what they believe and that's what their God says, then they have justification to do whatever it is that they wanna do. And do you see the problem with that? Because if we can theologize something we can convince ourselves no matter what anyone else thinks we can do. 
I was watching a documentary not long ago on one of the news networks about the Deep South, and they came into a, um, a meeting of the, of the Ku Klux Klan. So here you have a group of men who are in their white robes sitting in a circle, and the camera's pulling in, and the interesting thing about it was they all had their Bibles open in their lap. And as they were sitting there, their leader began to, to chastise and to say the words that the Bible says that only whites are the true breed of God. And I listened to that, and I'm going like, they've never read the Bible. But yet they say they represent Christianity or a group, group of Christians. And I was, I'll tell you what, I, I'm a nice guy, believe it or not. I was a little upset. I wanted to go through the television and punch the guy in the throat. I wasn't happy with what I was hearing because I'm sitting there saying, there's no way that you can have a message like that and say that the God of Christianity affirms that message. There's just no way you can say that. We can never share the love of Jesus Christ with others, especially non-believers, if we're not willing to admit that, that we have allowed Christianity to become that which we think that we're better than other people. We need to understand that Jesus began his ministry not with the non-believers. Jesus began his ministry with the believers. And Jesus went to him. He didn't go to the secularists. He didn't go to the atheists or the agnostics. But he went to those who called themselves religious. And Jesus started his ministry with the word what? Repent. He wasn't talking to pagans. He was talking to those who were a part of the church. And he was saying, you need to get this right, church. You need to get this right, that we're not an exclusive sect, that we're not about rules and regulations, but you need to get this right, that there's people, all people, I'm, I'm gonna die for everybody, Jesus said. And church, you need to repent and get this right. Non-believers, they oftentimes, by all the reports that I read and the studies and the seminars and things that I go to, I try to understand the culture in which we live because the only way that I can be a pastor to the culture in which we live is to understand who's in our culture. And I hope that you understand who's in our culture too. And when, we, when I begin to look and talk to people that, that are non-believers, they say that, that a couple things. They say, first of all, you know, as a church, we've got to admit, we've got to admit that we've made mistakes. So that's the first step in, in understanding how we can grow out of being seen as being hypocrites to other people, is to admit it. We're not perfect. Sometimes we get our messaging wrong. But what we have is we have a great message. We have a message of truth. We have a message of love. And we need to make sure that the message that we're bringing from our lips and from our hearts is conveying that. We also need to understand that the church is filled with fake disciples. I don't want this to be an offensive term, but listen to what I'm trying to say with this that the church is filled with fake disciples. The church is filled with today with people who come on Sundays, they give an offering, they might uh, do something afterwards, and then they go home. And then all throughout the week, they forget anything at all about what it meant to be together as a body of Christ. They, they forget what it means to have shared the Lord's sacrament together. They, they forget what it means that life should be different and, and how they're acting in the world is totally different than how they act on Sunday morning. These are, these are what we call fake disciples. They don't understand yet. And I was doing a little bit of investigative work this past week and I wanted to know what's the difference between Christians or people who profess to be Christians and non-believers? 
And, and I found a, an interesting uh, study, and it said uh, a survey showed that both Christians and non-Christians had extramarital affairs, cheated on their income taxes, lied daily to get ahead in life, gossiped about other people, bragged to others about their so-called better living and wealth, stole pencils, pens, supplies from their places of employment, falsified someone else's signature on a legally binding document, lied on applications for car loans and credit cards when it came to how much their income was. That's, that's what believers and non-believers in this survey both said they did that. But here's the distinguishing mark when it came to recycling. 68% said that they recycled, and that was non-believers. So think about it. I mean, I mean, are we kidding? This is what we're known for? This is where we've got to get it right because in order for us to make sure that the world knows the valuable message, that the world knows the message of truth, we've got to get it right ourselves. Here's the reality of, of Christianity, though. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians, he says, if you actually know and love the God of the universe, then you're going to grow in the acts and the attributes of the Spirit. Paul says when you really know God, you're gonna grow in love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and patience and self-control. Paul says those are the signs that you're growing in God when your life exhibits those kinds of things, not when your life exhibits judgment and when your life exi exhibits um, you know, pointing out things to other people rather than your own life. Paul says when we begin to see those kinds of things. In Matthew chapter seven, Jesus is, is talking about um, an end time. He's talking about a time when, when things will be reconciled to God. And, and Matthew writes that Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did, you, did, you not, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons and perform miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me. So sometimes we, this is where I say that, that we could be fake disciples. We think if we just go through the motions of, of, of our faith, if we just go through the motions of what it means to be in a relationship with God, if we just play church, then that's not, that's not what God wants. That's hypocrisy. And, and Jesus says that, that we, can, we can give money, we can come to church, we can even do our devotions, we can you know, stray away from R-rated movies and all those kind of things. And, and, and he says, still, that, 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 that doesn't matter because you didn't know me. I didn't know you. And we need to know God and God needs to know us. You see, when we come into the skeptic's point of view, the church being filled with people who aren't really disciples, then we have to understand how do we combat that? Because if the world sees and thinks that we're a bunch of hypocrites, how do we combat that? We need to combat it because it's not about our life. We should not be teaching people to live like we live. Who should we be teaching them to live like? Jesus. So it's not about us, it's about the author of our faith. It's about the one who wrote the book. It's about the one who lived, lived the sinless life, knowing that, that God knew that you and I would screw it up somehow. But Jesus doesn't screw it up. So we need to continue to point non-believers not, not toward the, the, the errors and mistakes that we make, but we need to point them to God. We need to point them to Jesus. And we need to show them the life that comes from that. You see, we need to point them to the founder of the movement, 
The founder of the movement who died for everybody. The founder of the movement who didn't want power, who didn't want to lord it over people, but the one who surrendered that, who basically became humble even upon death. The one who died for his enemies. The one who, who gives up the power. He doesn't go after that. The one who absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. That's the one we need to tell them the story about. And that's the one that we need their lives to become different. Because when we begin to steer people toward the life of Jesus, then we ourselves begin to understand what it means to love our enemies, what it means to pray for those who persecute us. And we begin to learn that those aren't secondary doctrines of this faith that we confess, but it is the root, it is the center of the entire church. And that dying on the cross that Jesus gave his life to, to, to basically pay for the sin that you and I succumb to every day. We see our enemies, though, and what do we do? Jesus says, love them. Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. But when you and I come in contact with our enemies, what do we do? We ostracize them. We call them out. We say that we slander them, we gossip about them, we politicize them, we oppress them. And you see, as I read the scriptures, it's like Jesus predicted this would happen. And this is why we, the church, need to constantly be looking in our hearts to ensure that we are not living in a life of hypocrisy, but that we are living in a life of truth. Here's the third piece. The church is a place for sinners. The church is a place for sinners. Say the word sinner. Sinner. We don't hear that word enough in churches, do we? But it's the foundation of why we have a Savior, isn't it? The church is a place for sinners. When a non-believer begins to think, I can't go into the church because I'm a sinner, then you and I have gotten the message all wrong. If people feel they cannot come to churches because their life is not perfect, then you and I in the church have gotten it all wrong. Scripture doesn't say to be in the church or to be a Christian means that you were once a bad person, now all of a sudden you're a good person and you never do anything wrong again. That's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about Jesus who became good or who is good so that you and I could be better. And that out of his perfection, you and I have a chance. Jesus is perfect and we're not. But we're not moving on to salvation to work for our favor in God. So it's really more about God and less about us. The church is filled with messy people. The church is filled with people whose lives aren't perfect. Your small group, your Sunday class, the groups that you're in, you should not be sitting around people who have life all together. The person that you're sitting next to right now in church, guess what? They're not perfect either. Husbands, your wives are, it's Mother's Day. <laughs> but they're not perfect either, are they? The church and all things apart the church should be about us bringing all of our imperfections together. It should be about bringing all of our imperfections to bear so that we can help clear those things. We need to be able to start giving people permission as they come into churches in our small groups and our gatherings to say that, that I know that I'm broken, I know that my life's not together, but in this place, I know I can find that Jesus loves me. 
We need to find this in our churches. We should never say, why in the world is that person in our church today? The church is a hospital. It's not a country club. You know what a country club is. It's where you pay dues. You go and you have your little drinks and you have fun and all those kind of things. That's not what a church is. Country clubs are perfect. Everybody dresses perfectly. Their haircuts are perfect. That's not what a church is. Church is a hospital. Church is filled with messiness. It's filled with people who don't have their lives together. But it's a place where people can say, I need the grace of Jesus Christ. And I need that grace to make me whole. 